All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the well here at STSA. Great to see so many people here today. We are on our second part of a series called Untold Stories, the Forgotten Fathers of Faith. And what we're talking about, for those who weren't here last week, just to get you kind of caught up, we're talking about the church fathers in the same way that we look at our nation and we talk about our founding fathers. Like if I say to you, United States of America, founding fathers, you think to yourself, the people who were there at the very beginning when the thing was just starting off and they believed in this thing called democracy and they believed in this thing called America and they gave their lives for it and they fought for it. And because of them, we have what we have today. And the church kind of has the same thing going on with the same term fathers, but we wouldn't say founding fathers as much as we'd say church fathers. And we're talking about those heroes of the faith. The people that, as the video just showed us a minute ago, that helped us know what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. There's lots of writings from the first century, but which ones are accurate, which ones are not accurate. They're the guys who gave us what is it really we're supposed to believe about Jesus. Like a lot of people say a lot of different things. And today there's a lot of people who have a million different beliefs about who Jesus was. But what did like the guys who knew him say? And what did the guys who actually like ate and drank with him, what did they say? And in fact, we can even go back and say, what did he himself say? These were the guys that took the church, as I said last week, when it was just in diapers. Okay, the New Testament ends, end of the first century, and the church was just a, 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 a seed that had just started to sprout. But it was basically, think of it like a, like a, a child. Okay, just an embryo just the beginning, just the, the starting point. But you know when that child is in its earliest state at the infancy state, it's the most fragile. And that's when it needs the most care and the most nurturing and the most protection and the most feeding. And who was it that provided that for the church? It's these guys that we're talking about, the church fathers. So every week what we're doing during this three-week series is we're looking at a different father who many of us don't even know their name, but we owe a lot to them. And last week, for those who were here, we talked about a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. And Ignatius of Antioch was one of the earliest Christian writers in the, in the, in the second century, early part. And he taught us things like about the value that the church looked at, like a lot of things that we have today. And we're like, how important is this? Well, Ignatius showed us something like the Eucharist, for example, was super duper important in the second century from the people who knew Jesus and, and the disciples of those guys. And, and he also showed us lots of different things about the church and the hierarchy and about the form of the church. The other thing that he showed us, the most um, inspiring piece that we saw last week in Ignatius, for those who are here, is that we saw what's in the mind and the heart of someone approaching martyrdom. And we saw how Ignatius was marching to his own martyrdom. And he wrote a letter to the church of Rome, and in, which is where he was on his way to get killed. And instead of saying to them what I would say to them, like if you're writing a letter to the church of Rome as you're approaching there and, 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 and you're about to get killed, I'd be thinking to myself, okay, we're coming on this road right here. Get the ambush ready. Okay, get the slingshot, go David and Goliath, like whatever it takes. Here's the road. I'll give you the signal. You jump on the bad guys. But that's not what he said. He said, when I get there, don't interfere. Don't think you're doing me any favors by stopping this martyrdom. I want to be one with Christ. And he said, even if I come, and I start to, to, to get scared under the pain and the torture. And I start to say, somebody save me. Don't listen to me. Because I want to be one with my Savior in life, but also in death. Truly inspirational. We saw the extent of someone who really loves God. Now, the second forgotten father we're going to talk about today is forgotten 
and he's forgotten for good reason, because actually we don't know his name. We're gonna talk about a guy today who wrote one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in Christian history. But the problem is he didn't sign his name to it. The name of the writing is called the letter to Diognetus. Everyone say Diognetus, say Diognetus. Diognetus is the recipient of a letter from a guy who we don't know who his name is. He didn't sign his name, he's anonymous. But he wrote one of the most beautiful letters that's gonna teach us a lot about what life was like in the early church. All right, so let's get our historical context. We're going now to the start of the second century. That means roughly the year what? When the second century begins in the year 100, not 200, right? The first century begins in zero, the second century begins in 100. So we're, let, let's just kind of throw a number out there of like 120 or 125. That's kind of roughly when, when people date this writing. So we're talking about less than 100 years after Christ died and rose from the dead. Less than 100 years after that. We're talking about less than 30 or 40 years from the time of the last of the apostles who died, which was John, okay, who wrote the book of Revelation. He died roughly the year 100 AD. So this is like 30 years later, okay, 35 years later, something like that, when we get this mysterious writing, and it, this writing to Diognetus. Okay, very good. Now, there's two theories about this writing. One theory is it was an anonymous letter written to the emperor. And it was addressed to a guy named Diognetus, but there's no such person as Diognetus, all right? So it was just basically, I wanna write a letter, an open letter to the people of the United States of America. But I, I said to Diognetus, who doesn't really exist, and my point was to get it up to the top, to the emperor, and speak to him about Christianity, because it's a defense of Christianity. That's one theory. The other theory is that there really was a guy named Diognetus, and our author met him one day, and the two became friends, or whatever it was, and Diognetus was not Christian. He was pagan. Okay, he did not believe in, 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 the, in the one true God. And he met our author, who clearly was Christian, and the two started to form a friendship. And Diognetus was kind of curious. Why is it that you don't worship our gods? Like we have Zeus and we have Aphrodite and we got like all the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And what's the name of your God? And where does he fit in here? And, and our author's like, no, 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 no. We don't do any of that stuff. So Diognetus was curious. And Diognetus was curious as to him as to why you're not Jewish, but you use the Jewish scriptures? So Diognetus started asking him all these questions and was curious, and our author wrote this letter in response. Why this is so important, okay, why this is instrumental in Christian history. This is the first piece of Christian writing. This is an important piece if you're ever on Jeopardy. The first piece of Christian writing not addressed to Christians. All of the New Testament is St. Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus or in Rome, or in Corinth, all right? Or James writing to the believers scattered wherever they may be. Last week, we saw Ignatius's letters to the believers in the different cities. This is the first writing that is not addressed to a Christian audience, but to a pagan audience. And what's so valuable about it to us is it shows us how did the early church explain who we are? A common question that I get all the time, you may get it, you may not get it. What are you? Okay, people see me and they say, oh, what are you? Okay, a common question you don't know how to answer. Like, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm happy, like I'm, I'm an American, like I'm, well, I'm, what am I? Okay, but clearly they're trying to say like you, like your religious beliefs, like what are you and what do you believe and where are you from? 
All right, and what a lot of people say is we're Orthodox, like Greek, yeah, kind of like Greek, like Catholic, well, sort of, but we don't have the Pope and our priests are married. So what are you? Well, the early church, how did they answer this question, what are you? If someone said to a Christian in the second century, what do you believe? How did they answer these questions? Would they start with dogma? Would they start by saying, we the Christians, we believe in this doctrine and this doctrine and, and take it or leave it. And if you don't believe it, like you're an idiot and you don't deserve to be in the kingdom of God unless you believe one, two, three. Is that how they started? Or maybe they started with like ethics. And they said, we as Christians, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. This is who we are. We shall not that. We shall not that. And you should shout not that as well. Or did they just start simply by saying that we, uh, the people of the Old Testament, they blew it. So we're kind of like who they were supposed to be, but we're better than them. How did the early church present Christianity to non-believers? Why this is also so relevant to us is because when you look at culture back in the first, second century, it actually wasn't that much different than where we are today. Diognetus lives in a time where culture was very cynical towards religion. Culture was very cynical towards the beliefs of those who professed religion. So at the time you had, like I said, the Greek and Roman God system, like the Zeus, the Aphrodite, the Hermes, that all that kinds of stuff. But by this time, people had developed to the point where they didn't really believe that stuff. They kind of still went through the motions because that was like the state religion, but they weren't really buying into all the stories and, 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 and the drama as much as they had before. Like even there's, there's, there's people who will say at this time that even the emperor, okay, the emperor used to, they say the emperor was, was divine. Okay, but even at this time, even the emperor Caesar had figured out that he was no more, he wasn't God. Okay, he had figured that out. And my guess is probably his wife was probably the first one to tell him, but I mean, that's, so even by this time, they'd stopped practicing all that stuff in a meaningful way. They still offered incense to the, to the gods and they still did the sacrifices, but it was just kind of out of civic duty. Think of it like, like when we teach kids in the school just to say the Pledge of Allegiance. They don't know what they're doing, but they know they're supposed to start by saying, I pledge allegiance. That's what kind of was going on in culture at this time. I read a book um, by a Catholic author who spoke about this time, and he says, the time of this writing in fact, many are not sure what they really believe. Many are agnostic, and they're tired, they're bored, and they're jaded. Sounds, sounds familiar, right? That's kind of like, that could describe like Northern Virginia, DC metropolitan area the year 2018. People don't know what they believe. Agnostic means I may believe that or I may believe that. And they're kind of jaded, they're tired, they're bored, and they don't want to hear of it because they've been burned by religion. And onto that scene, here comes Christianity this new religion, this, this religion that doesn't preach many gods, but preaches only one God. That's why I told you all last week that Christianity originally was called atheists because they rejected all these other gods. So here come these atheists coming out of Jerusalem with a weird doctrine about something about a criminal who's their God, who died, and then they claim he rose again, but, but they're not coming to like take over other religions. They just kind of like love everyone and they're just like really nice to each other and like awkwardly nice. So like, what's the deal with these Christians? And while many people in the world were antagonistic and were, were hostile towards Christianity, the majority of the people were curious. At least that's what we see right here. So in that context, the letter to Diognetus is an attempt from our author to capitalize on that curiosity, to say, you're wondering who we Christians are? Well, let me tell you. And he presents the gospel. This is the first time we see 
the gospel presented in a structured manner. First time we see our faith explained to someone who has no experience with it, and we're gonna see the blueprint for evangelism. And let's just read the introduction from Diognetus. Every, every verse we're gonna see here today, every, every, every text up here is from the letter to Diognetus. Okay, just different chapters of it, but these are all from there. This is how it starts. It says, most excellent Diognetus, I can see that you deeply desire to learn how Christians worship their God. You have so carefully and earnestly asked your questions about them. What is it about the God they believe in and the form of religion they observe that lets them look down upon the world and despise death? When he says look down upon the world and despise death, he's talking about what? What is it that makes the Christians despise death and look down on the world means martyrdom. What is it about you guys that allows you to say, I don't care if I die. Like, I don't care about death. I'm not afraid. Everyone was afraid of death, but these guys, they didn't care about death. They look down at the world. They look down at the riches. What is it about you guys that makes you different than us? Why do they reject the Greek gods and the Jewish superstitions alike? What about the affection they all have for each other? And why has this new group and their practices come to life only now and not long ago? So before we get into the actual text, the starting point of evangelism, the starting point of explaining the faith, the starting point of someone who doesn't believe and you want them to believe, what's the starting point? Is it dogma? Is it ethics? Is it Bible? What's the starting point that our author begins with before he presents the gospel? He answers this question. The starting point is always asking the question, what's the real question? What's the real question? Our author doesn't just start presenting the gospel. You need to know this, you need to know this, you need to know this. He takes a step back and says, you're asking questions. You're asking, what is it about the God you believe in? You're asking, why is it that you guys love each other in such a weird way? You're asking, why is it if your religion is so valuable, why did it take your God so long to give it to you? So the starting point is always, what's the real question? Do you know how many times I get approached with a comment as follows? Father Anthony, so-and-so, and fill in the blank, your coworker, your cousin, your whatever, doesn't believe in God. They don't believe in God. They're an atheist. Give me a book that shows them that God exists. Like, what book can I tell them to read to convince them that they're wrong? So-and-so, Father Anthony, so-and-so left the church. They hate the church. They've been burned by the church. Give me a sermon that I can send them, like a link that I can send them to convince them that they need to come to church. Father Anthony, my daughter, went off to college. And now that she went to college taking these philosophy classes and she's asking all these questions, can you just call her, tell her, stop asking questions, stop thinking, and just focus on getting married? Can you just tell her that? We mistakenly think the starting point is, what do you need to know? What do they need to know? What does my coworker need to know? What does my boss need to know? What does my sister need to know? They need to know this, and they need to know that, and they need to know the scriptures, and they need to know the proofs. No, 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 You don't start with what do they need to know. You start with what are they asking? Where are they coming from? What questions are on their heart and on their mind? What are they looking for answers to? And then you present the answers in that light. I read it one time that Christians especially Orthodox Christians, I'll kind of add, are the best at answering questions that nobody is asking. Think about that one. We are the best at answering questions that nobody is asking. And if your evangelism efforts are maybe falling on deaf ears, maybe because you're answering a question 
that nobody is asking. And instead of answering, evangelism doesn't begin with our mouth, it begins with our ears. That's what Letter to Diognetus shows us. So step one, what's the real question? The person who's asking you, by the way, when I say what's the real question, you don't listen to the questions that they're saying with their words, you listen to the question they're saying with their hearts. So for example, someone who says, why do bad things happen to good people? How can I believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people? They are not asking for a theological discourse on the sovereignty of God. You know what they're asking? Why did my mom die? Why did my dad leave us? That's what they're asking. Someone who says, how come God says this and this about prayer, but I don't believe this and this about prayer. They're not asking about prayer. They're asking, why am I still single even though I prayed that I wouldn't be? Why has my womb not opened and we don't have a child even though we prayed that we would? Why am I still waiting for an answer to God from God? That's what they're asking. The person who says, how do I know God is real? How do I know God is real? You know what they're saying? What they're really saying they're saying is, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I want to be my own boss. And until I'm convinced that I shouldn't be the boss, I'm gonna continue to believe that God isn't real. The reason for disbelief in my experience, and I'm not the most experienced guy in the world, but I talk to a lot of people. I never met somebody who didn't believe in God and it wasn't a personal reason underneath the, underneath the surface. On the surface, you go listen to the YouTube guys and they'll preach to you about this. And they don't believe in the God and they'll tell you what, and all, that's great. Have a conversation with them. Don't listen to them on YouTube. Have a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. And I guarantee you, underneath the surface, there's a personal reason, a personal hurt, a personal disappointment. So somebody who's dealing with, my dad left us, my mom abused us, and you're talking doctrine and dogma, you are not going to get that point across. Someone who feels hurt and they feel alone, and they feel like God doesn't hear me, and you're talking about the proof of the resurrection, you're on the wrong page. And let me say something else while I got this kind of an aside note. The 50% of the people in the room here right now, all the men in the room, you want to know majority of the time what that personal thing has to deal with? It has to deal with their fathers. And I guarantee you, you go find any famous atheist, any strong believing atheist. I don't know if that's a word, believing atheist. You know what I'm trying to say? People who are really strong in their atheistic unbelief or whatever. And I'm telling you, nine out of 10 times, you go to the root and you ask their relationship with their father. And I'm telling you, nine out of 10 times, it was a broken relationship. We dads, we got a big responsibility. We got a big responsibility because Jesus says, when you talk to God, call him our father. And that's what all the men, listen carefully. There's one day that your kid is gonna go to Sunday school and his Sunday school teacher is gonna say the following. God is like your father. God is like your father. You know your father? God is like your father. Who wants to spend time with God? And most kids will say, not me, not me. I already got one of those guys at home. I don't need a second one. We have a big responsibility. Starting point is not here, is here. Listening to what is the real question. So the letter Diognetus answers three questions. That's what we just read in those verses, okay? And I'll recap the questions. The first question is, who is your God? Okay, the God who you worship, what do you believe about him? Tell me about your God. He seems different than all the other gods. Tell me about your God. The second question is, what's with all the love? What's with all the loving each other and the like being so nice to each other? And like the, oh, everything is love, 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 love. You know, Christians in the early church were accused of incest. You know why? Because they called everyone brother and sister. 
And then they talked about how much they loved their brother and sister. And they would gather together at what, this is how the world looked at them, okay? World would said, they gathered together at their love feasts and their worship love feasts with their brother and sister. And they also accused them of cannibalism because they believed that strongly in the Eucharist that they said they're drinking blood and they're eating flesh. Do you see how real the early church believed in the Eucharist? And the early church took like this love thing that they would gather for love feast with their brother and sister because the way the world thought is a lot of the religious ceremonies were, were sexual in nature. So the Christians would gather with their brothers and sisters in a love feast, okay? So that's what the Diognetus is asking, like, what's with all the love with you guys? Like, you guys are weirdly nice to each other. It's kind of uncomfortable. And then the third question, which maybe you've never thought of, if your God is so great and your God is so loving, why did he wait thousands and thousands of years to reveal himself? Like, why did God just reveal himself last century when there's so many eons of, of, Christian, of history where there was no God. Like, how can he be that nice if he just showed up uh, like last week? Our author answers these three questions. And he does so, here's an important point as well. He answers all these three questions without one reference to the Bible. Without one reference to the Bible. Why is that important for us? Because first of all, it reminds us that Christianity existed before the Bible. Christianity didn't come from the Bible. The Bible came from Christianity, right? Christianity was there from the time right after Jesus died and rose, boom, there was Christianity. Bible didn't come around till much, much, much later. In addition, what it shows us is that it's okay for us as Christians to venture outside of the Christian bubble. We're allowed to listen to music that's not Christian music, we're allowed to read books that are not Christian books. We're allowed to wear t-shirts that aren't Christian t-shirts. Like we're allowed to go outside the bubble and that's okay. And a lot of the church fathers did that. What we'll see here with the letter to Diognetus, he actually references philosophers. He talks about Plato. We'll see a lot of other church fathers will reference uh, um, the poets of the time. You think of St. Paul actually in Athens in Acts 17, where he came to the city of Athens. They didn't know anything about Jesus. They didn't know anything about, about Christianity but they knew they had a statue to an unknown God. So he said, okay, let me talk to you about this unknown God. And he began to speak at their level and he quoted their poets and he spoke to them from their context. It's important for us to understand that you can't use the Bible as a source for somebody who doesn't believe the Bible, right? So when you go to your non-believing friend says, the Bible says, well, I don't believe in the Bible. So you are building your argument on something which they don't accept as a source. So we have to be able to use non-Bible sources to show the validity of our faith, all right? Christianity didn't come from the Bible. Bible came from Christianity, all right? We don't believe in God because the Bible tells us to believe in God, all right? We believe in the Bible because God, Jesus, referenced the Old Testament scriptures and helped to give us the New Testament scriptures and his disciples did. So it's not Bible to God, it's God to Bible. Anyway, let's jump in. All right, let's jump into our, our three questions. The first question that he answers without look, referencing the Bible is what is Christianity? What is it about your God, your beliefs? Explain to me Christianity. And simply put, the author says Christianity is something radically new. That's how he explains Christianity. He explains Christianity by saying it's not an improvement it's something completely new that the world has never seen before. And in fact, in his, in his letter, he says that we are a new race. Christians are a new race. 
Christians live a new way of life. And he makes it clear that is unlike any religion that they would see around them. All right, let's go to chapter two right here. It says, come then after you have freed yourself from all prejudices, possessing your mind and laid aside what you have been accustomed to as something apt to deceive you and being made as if from the beginning, a new man. Inasmuch as according to your own confession, you are to be the hearer of a new doctrine. What he's saying right there is you yourself agree, you admit that we're like nothing you've ever seen. So I, what I need you to do, Diagnetus, is remove from your mind all the other religions and get ready, start with a blank slate. Religions at the time, okay, in the, in the second century, were a very local or ethnic kind of a thing. So like Egypt, there was like the gods of Egypt. Then there was like the gods of Rome. And then there was like the, the Greek gods. And then like the Persian gods. So religion was a very like affiliated with a certain location kind of a thing. Well, what our author is going to say right here is we as Christians, we do not belong to a specific tribe, a specific people, a specific language. We are universal, or actually this is the, we hear this word in his epistle, or we don't hear this word, but we hear it described as we are Catholic and that we are not linked to a particular tribe. And he says something so beautiful about how we having no home yet all share the same home. Let's see what he says right here. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but it's so beautiful. For Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. Meaning, this isn't something that we just made up on our own. This isn't like the idea of the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans who kind of sat down around a table and said, I think this is what the gods, are look, what the gods look like. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as a lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life saying there that they dress like you, they eat like you, they live in the same cities as you, but man, they're not like you at all. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land, look at this, this is how nice this. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. And he goes on, ah, just beautiful stuff right there. I just want to point two things, just two things of note. He basically says, we're unlike anything you've ever seen. And he highlights two points, two points that distinguishes the Christians from the rest of the culture around them. Two points of morality. You know, do you see what those two points of morality are right there? The first one is what? We're not like you in that we what? We beget children, but we, we do not destroy our offspring. Christianity in the second century, and from the first century as well, but in the second century, we see it more prolific in the writings, was the first major religion. Christians were the first people on the planet to preach the sanctity of every life and the value of every life. We take it for granted. We take it for granted that man, woman, child, rich, poor, black, white, we take for granted. But that's not the world back then because the world back then was survival of the fittest. 
And the world back then was your value was directly, directly related to what you could provide to society. So by default, men were more valuable than women. Adults were more valuable than children. Rich were more valuable than poor. That was the world in which they lived. And because of that, they had no problem destroying their offspring. When he says destroy their offspring, you may think he's talking about abortion. He is talking about abortion, and the, and the church from the very beginning said how abortion is murder. But he's not talking just about abortion, because abortion wasn't as common at the time as you think, because medicine wasn't as it is today. They came up with a much easier way to kill the babies. They didn't have to go inside a woman's body. You know what they would do? They would just have the baby and just leave it outside on the front porch. This was very common. Because lives had no value. That little life, he cannot contribute to society. They would just have their babies and just leave them outside and let them die. And actually, the baby probably wished they would die. Because you know the other option if the baby didn't die? You know who you get picked up by? You get picked up by brothel owners to become sex traffic and to work in their little sex houses and become slaves for them. So the child, no value, just a little kid, throw him in the street. And then here comes Christians. What did Christians do? Number one, Christians didn't kill their own babies. You know what else Christians did? They went and picked up those babies and raised them as their own. And there was even certain places where people knew that if you put, left a baby right here, like if a mother had a heart that didn't want to kill her child, she knew where to put that child, that that child would get picked up by a Christian, not by the slave, or, slave owners. And Christians, you see the contrast? Just watch this contrast. Here you have on one hand, parents destroying their own children out of pure selfishness. This child adds nothing to my life. This child adds no value to me or to society. Get rid of them. 100% selfish, me, 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 me. And then on the other side, you have Christians who are saying, this child adds nothing to my life. I didn't even bring this child in. I got enough on my plate, but unselfish, 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 I adopt the child as my own. That's why I got to say something right here. I've been meaning to say this for a while, but I was just waiting for a time to stick it in. I sometimes hear a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Where I hear some people say, adoption. No, 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 no. Don't do adoption. No, no, no. Trust in God. No, adoption's not for us. It's only, no, 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 no. We don't do adoption. If you trust God, you don't do adoption. Let me tell you how dumb a statement that is. Because I honestly believe with all my heart, the most God-like thing you'll ever do in your life is to adopt a child that's not your own. The most God-like thing you will do. And we got to get rid of, some of us have this cultural thing that adoption is, is not for us and it's embarrassing and it's wrong. The most God-like thing you can do, that's what God did, is he took a bunch of people who were not his children. Israel was his children. The Jews were his children. Unless you have Jewish parents, I don't have Jewish parents, okay? I have Gentile parents. So unless you have Jewish parents, you were adopted into God's family, adding no value to him. And he chose you and said, I adopt you. I bring you into my family. The most God-like thing you will do. And somehow I just feel like in my heart, there might be someone here who might need to hear that. That you could be for a child, what the, the Christians were in the first and second century for that kid sitting by the river, a source of life. That's one thing. He said, we don't kill our offspring. The second thing he said is what? We share a common table, but not a common bed. Christians were the first ones to preach not just sanctity of life, but sanctity of marriage, okay? And the two go hand in hand, if you continue to read the writings, that you can't believe in the sanctity of life without the sanctity of marriage and vice versa. To believe in, in the value of life, you have to believe in the value of marriage because marriage is the means by which life comes into the world. And they preached, unlike the rest of society, okay, back then society was very casual with regard to sex. And so much so that, you know what? A married man to go have sex with someone who's not his wife wouldn't need to hide it. Uh, he could just go do it openly, it wasn't wrong. 
Some of the married men are smiling. I don't know why you're smiling right there, okay? If your husband is smiling, okay, you're going to get a talking to when you go home, okay? This is the way it was. And in fact, okay, again, I'm sorry to, to paint this image. It's gross and, and it's, uh, it's grotesque, but, but that's why a lot of them had slaves. And they had the right as a slave owner to bring your slave in and say, she's yours for the night. And that's what men did on a regular basis. And it wasn't wrong. It wasn't like hiding. It wasn't like, I hope my wife doesn't find out. It was announced publicly. Well, here come the Christians, entered the scene and said, marriage is not just a legal contract. Marriage is something sacred. And marriage is the means by which God brings life into this world. So it has value. And they were the first ones to say that in Christ, there is no male nor female. There's no Jew nor Gentile. There's no rich nor poor. There's no adult and child. Everyone in God's eyes has equal value and that value is infinite. Christians were the first ones to say it. He goes on. Okay, he gives this nice analogy and he references, this is where I'm saying he's gonna reference Plato, the philosopher, an idea which they all knew. Look how nice he says. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. That's nice. Okay, it's kind of like when Jesus said that Christians are the light of the world, salt of the earth. He's saying what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed throughout all the members of the body and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body. And Christians dwell in the world, yet not of the world. Y'all get, get what he's saying? He's saying, I got my whole body right here and the soul is inside it, but the soul is separate from it. Okay, that's what Christians are in the world. He says, the invisible soul is guarded by the visible body and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though it's self-suffering no injury because it is prevented from enjoying pleasures. The world also hates Christians, though in no wise injured, because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it. Let's say that one again, Christians in the world. The soul loves the flesh that hates it and loves also the members. Christians likewise love those that hate them. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, you can't tell me that's not beautiful. I'm the only one excited about this stuff. The soul is imprisoned in the body yet keeps together that very body. And Christians are confined in the world as in a prison and yet they keep together the world. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, I think, I think in, in, in our church right here, one of our core values is genuine love for community. And one of the things that we believe, I said this from the very start, that the day we as STSA say, you know what, we're leaving Arlington. We're going to McLean or we're going to Tyson's or we're going to Falls Church. The day that happens, the people from the Arlington Board of Supervisors say, no, please don't leave. No, please don't leave. Y'all are what's holding us together. Y'all are a blessing to us. Y'all are the reason that, and then they would say, boom, boom, boom. Y'all are the reason this, this happens. We need to be in the community the way the early church was. They're a blessing. And they didn't want them to leave. They wanted them to come. They loved to hire Christians back in the day because the Christians were the most honest people. And even though they didn't believe what they believed in, they wanted them to be around them. They wanted to do business with Christians. That's supposed to be us in this world. That actually leads us to the second question. The second question that I told you Diognetus was asking is, what's with all the love? Why y'all love each other? Why y'all so nice to each other? Like, what's in it? What, what's the catch? And our author answers this. He says, we love uncommonly because we are loved unfathomably. We love uncommonly because we are loved unfathomably. And our author connects the love we have for one another with the love that we receive from God. Now, again, in our, in our context here, certain things we take for granted, certain things we've been told so many times, so we just kind of hear it and we don't even pay much attention. God is love. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that. God loves us. God cares for us. Okay, certain words that we hear in liturgical prayers, God is the beneficent one. Okay, God is the philanthropic one. God is the benevolent one. We hear these words and we're like, yeah, 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 God is a nice guy. No, 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 no. This is a novel concept. Because again, if you remember, go back to the Greek and Roman gods. Remember the stories, the Greek and Roman mythology. The gods that they knew were loving, were kind, the gods cared. The gods were everything bad in humanity times 10. So the gods of the day, they cheated on their spouses. That's the story. You go read the Greek and Roman mythology. They would cheat on their spouses. They would murder one another. They would stab each other in the back. Your greatest hope with the Greek and Roman gods was that they would leave you alone and that, they, that you never had to deal with them. And if you did deal with them, you would offer sacrifices to appease their wrath, all right? Basically bribe them to leave you alone. And in the face of that, here comes Christians saying, our God is not like their gods. Our God is new. Christianity is something radically new. Our God is not aloof. Our God is not angry. Our God is not apathetic. Our God cares. Our God loves. Our God is passionate about his children. And this was a foreign concept to them. And I think, to be honest, it's kind of a foreign concept to the world today as well. Not the words, because they've heard the words, but the sight. Knowing that God is love, hearing God is love, everyone has heard this before. But has everyone seen it? And this is where we as Christians come in. We as Christians are supposed to show the world we love them because he loves us. That we love each other and we love the world in an uncommon way that you'll never see because we have been loved in an unfathomable way by the invisible God. And here Diognetus, I'm sorry, the author to Diognetus points to the one act. What is the one act that shows the love of God for mankind more than any other act? What is it? I bet you get it wrong. It's what? When I said that wrong thing, you were all about to say the cross, weren't you? It's not the cross. It talks about a different act of God, the act that shows God's unfathomable love for us, the act that we're preparing for right now. It's his incarnation and his birth into this world. Listen to what he says. He did not, as one might have imagined, send to men any servant or angel or ruler, any one of those who bear sway over earthly things or one of those to whom the government of things in the heavens has been entrusted. Basically saying he didn't send to us a commander in chief or an army guy to get us in order. He didn't send someone to, to lord his authority over us, even though he could have. But the very creator and fashioner of all things, this messenger he sent to them, was it then, as one might conceive, for the purpose of exercising tyranny or of inspiring fear and terror? By no means. But under the influence of clemency and meekness, as a king sends his son, who is also a king, so he sent him. As God sent him, as to men he sent him, as a savior he sent him, and as seeking to persuade not to compel us, for violence has no place in the character of God, as calling us he sent him, not as vengefully pursuing us, but as lovingly, as loving us he sent him, not as judging us. What he's saying there so beautifully, he's saying, you know why we can love each other in such a weird way? You know why we don't like we don't, we don't hold grudges with one another? You know why even we don't hate you who try to kill us? You know why we love like that? Because we've been loved. And we've been loved by a God who had every right to come down to this earth and say, you get your act together. You stop doing that. You figure this out. And he could have come down and compelled us. He didn't come to propel, compel us. He came to persuade us. He didn't come to force us. 
He came to love us and to compel us by kindness and humility and compassion. That's why force is never the way of God, as he says right here. So all that like your faith and the Christianity and the crusades and all that stuff, no, 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 no. You cannot judge a religion by its abuse. Okay, the crusades and the forcing all that stuff, man, that's not the way of God. It cannot be the way of Christians. Just because some people did it that way, it has nothing to do with us. You know what also is not the way of God? Okay, what I take from this, maybe more applicable to us, is he was not annoying. He was not badgering. He was not pestering. Our God came down, presented love, and then let man make his decision. He wasn't constantly beating him and badgering him with the truth. I'll just leave it at that, okay? Some of us need to, there you go. God's way is revealed in love and humility and kindness and in grace and has to be our way as well. The last question, and this one's a little bit more tricky. If your God is so nice and his way is so new, why did it take so long? Why did he wait a thousand years or 10,000 years? Why not from the start did we reveal this new way? How do you see this question being asked today? This is how you hear this question being asked in the same way. Where is God? If God is so loving, where is he when? And then you fill in the blank. Where was he when there was the shooting in the school? If he's so loving. Like if he's so great and he's so protecting and loving his kids, where was he when these kids got shot? Where was he when this drunk driver went in the street and killed so-and-so? Where is he when, you know, there's tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis? Or let's be honest, where is he when my grandma is sick and in the hospital? Where is he when oh, we can't pay the bills? Where is he when I haven't had a job for two years? Where is God when? Our author concedes that it seems on the surface that God is neglecting his children. It may seem like that, but there's more to the story. And we're going to see a little bit of a longer passage right here, but stick with me. It's so good. And what our author says, he says there's more to the story on why God is delaying what seems to be something which should be so good. This was not, this is from chapter 9, this was not that he at all. stuff being like, ha ha, it stinks for you. But that he simply endured them, nor that he approved the time of working iniquity, which then was, but that he sought to form a mind conscious of righteousness. Hold that thought. He had a purpose. He was trying to form a mind in us. So that being convinced in that time of our unworthiness of attaining life through our own works, it should now, through the kindness of God, be vouchsafed to us. And having made it manifest that in ourselves we were unable to enter the kingdom of God, we might, through the power of God, be made able. So what is he saying right there? He was saying that God needed to show man that man couldn't do it by himself. Parents, you know when your kid is at that age, okay, we had a, at a phase of by myself, okay, it was the by myself phase, okay, it was most of 2007 and eight. The by myself phase was the, you need help with this? No, by myself, no, do this, no, by myself. No, put on your coat, by myself. Everything was by myself, by myself. Okay, the parents understand what I'm talking about. The by myself phase. Well, what's the best thing you can do for your kid in that, in that phase? Best thing you can do is just let them show that they can't reach the top of the fridge by themselves. Let them see that they can't carry the, the, the dresser by themselves. 
Let them see that they can't drive the car by themselves. So God, yeah, not that we should let them try to drive the car by themselves, but <laughs> God sometimes allows us to do the whole by myself thing to see that we can't do it by ourselves. And that was pretty much the period of the Old Testament. Then man had to see that he couldn't make himself right by himself. He needed the help from outside. He needed the help from God. Continues. But when our wickedness had reached its height, it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us. And when the time had come, which God had before appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one love of God, through exceeding regard for men, did not regard us with hatred, nor thrust us away, nor remember our iniquity against us, but showed great long-suffering and bore with us. All that is to say, I know it's kind of a run-on sentence, basically to say that God wasn't just watching, and God just didn't want us to see how bad we were and that we're the worst people, but there was a point to it, and the point was love. And at that point, he took himself, he took on, he took himself, he himself took on the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us. Listen to this now. The holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for those who are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Oh, sweet exchange. You see how evangelism is supposed to be? Evangelism is not supposed to be us declaring what's wrong in the world. It's supposed to be us declaring what's right in God. It's not supposed to be us telling the world this is wrong and this is bad and this is, this is why you should leave that. It's supposed to be us telling the world about how sweet and how beautiful and how kind and how compassionate our God is. Oh, sweet exchange is what he says. And then he says this. Having therefore convinced us in the former time that our nature was unable to attain to life and having now revealed the Savior who was able to save even those things which it was formerly impossible to save by both these facts. Here comes like the, the punchline, okay? By both of these facts, he desired to lead us to trust in his kindness, to esteem himself, our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, so that we should not be anxious concerning clothing and food. Do you see what he did right there? What's the purpose of God's delay in one answer? God's delay came for one purpose. What is that purpose? Trust. Delay, which we all hate, has a benefit, and it teaches us trust. You ever seen a child struggle to trust a parent? You ever seen a child who thinks that he's better off without the parent? Like I think of the story of the prodigal son. Y'all know that story about the son who said, I don't wanna live in my father's house anymore. I wanna be on my own. I wanna be free. Let's think about this for a second. When was that child most free? When he was outside or inside his father's house? Like is true freedom running through the wilderness all by himself? Or was his true freedom when he was sitting in the father's bosom with his father's loving arms around him? He thought, the father is holding me back. I need to be free. But true freedom, true freedom doesn't come from running through the wilderness by yourself. It comes from trusting and resting in the arms of the father. 
I want to go back to that verse right there just one second. By both of these facts, he desired to lead us to trust in his kindness. And then at the bottom, that we should not be anxious concerning clothing and food. You know what I often tell people who are in pain and want to know where is God? Where is God when? Where is God if? Where is God? Where is God? Where is God? You know what I often tell people? I say, you know, I don't have the answer. I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know why this happened. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I do know. Where you will find the answer will not be out there, but in here. You will not find the answer running away from God. You will only find the answer running to God. The answer to your problems, the answer to why God, where God, how come God, the answer to those things, the more you run from him, the further you run from the answer, and the more you run to him, the more you run to it. That's the letter to Diognetus. I don't know what God doing in your life. I don't know what God is doing in the life of your coworkers, your neighbors, those who are without God around you, but I know this, that as I see right here, that God has a plan, and God's plan, as we see right here, sometimes there's delay, but the point of the delay is to teach us to trust in his arms. I want to show you the last, last chapter. Or, I'm sorry, the last, the second to last chapter, okay, but what I think totally summarizes the letter to Diognetus. He says this. This is he who was from the beginning, who appeared new, was found to be old, and is ever born young in the hearts of the saints. You can't tell me that's not beautiful stuff. This is he who was from the beginning, who appeared new, was found to be old, and is ever born young in the hearts of his saints. What Letter to Diognetus teaches us is that the way we present Christianity, we don't defend Christianity. Like even that term, defend Christianity. I can't remember who it was that said, we defend Christianity the same way we defend a lion. We don't defend a lion. We get out of the lion's way. That's what the letter to Diognetus shows us, is that we don't need to convince anybody about Christianity. We don't need to defend Christianity. We need to get out of the way and let Christianity do what it does. It is something radically new. It is something which is uncommon love because of unfathomable love. And yes, there may be delay, but the point of the delay is to teach us to trust in the everlasting, infinite, loving arms of God. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your unfathomable love for us, your wisdom, all that you provide for us, Lord. We pray that you would teach us to trust in you as a simple child trusts in their father. Help us, Lord, as we go forward in life to continue to go back to our roots and to our church fathers who founded the faith and gave it to us and to return to that simple faith that they so clearly demonstrated. We pray this in the name of your son, with the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.